Good morning. morning. What to do with all these flags? There is a 90% chance that one of these is going to get knocked over. So just be ready for it. Uh, Take out your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4. This morning we're going to be thinking about verse 8. You can find it on page 982 in the Pew Bible. In celebration of International Sunday, I took it very literally this week, and I just went and preached at a Chinese church this morning. At about 11.10, I looked at my watch and panicked and started cutting things and finished at 11.17 and jumped in the car and just got here for the last song. Oh, thank you, VJ. So I'm all amped up. Usually I have a feel of the feel of the service, but I haven't been here, so I need you guys to be with me because uh, I'm excited. I've already preached once. I'm going to preach again. But I was pretty anxious about getting here on time. Segway. I tried to practice what I preached last week. And instead of worrying about it, tried praying about it. Because that's what we talked about last week. Look again at verse 6 there in Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known. To God. Don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. Verse 7, and the peace of God will guard your heart and mind. How'd that go for you this week? Honestly, how was your worry and anxiety? I would wager that even after hearing a sermon about the command to not worry and the solution to not worrying, that you maybe still struggled with not worrying. How do I know that? Because I preached the sermon about not worrying and still struggled with worrying. Why is that? I'm sure there are many reasons, uh, but one of them, I would argue, is that we didn't actually really try to do what Paul told us to do at all. We know Philippians 4, 6. We know that worry is wrong. We know that prayer is the solution. So we get anxious. We throw up a perfunctory prayer. We're still anxious. And so we throw up our hands in despair and give up. You told me to pray, and I wouldn't have anxiety but peace. I still have anxiety. Good. Uh, Not good that you still have anxiety, but good that you're starting to understand that this isn't magic. This isn't a quick fix. This isn't some formula that if you just follow it perfectly, then everything will automatically work out. And that's not how life works. That's not how the Christian life works. Our problem is that we want it to work how everything else kind of works today, immediately and automatically. We want microwave spirituality. We want a Google spirituality, an Amazon Prime spirituality. I was enraged this week because they failed to get me my book from across the country in one night, and it took two nights. How outrageous, Amazon, that you can't get me my books that quickly. You've probably used Wikipedia a lot. Students, don't use Wikipedia. Uh, But it's not all bad. Do you know what the word wiki means? Anybody? Anyone know what wiki means? It's the only thing we use for our information. No, it means quick. Wiki is Hawaiian for quick. And we all are conditioned to want wiki peace and wiki joy. We are being influenced to expect and demand immediate results with minimum effort And we cannot help but let that affect our spiritual expectations. So you prayed. You still struggled with anxiety. You're tempted to give up. You're tempted to believe that Paul is wrong. Listen, he's not. We can say this about Paul's writing in Scripture. Paul's never wrong. Don't give up on him yet because 
He's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So don't give up on him yet. And because there's another step. There's verse 8. Verse 6 does not work without verse 8. I believe that much that is wrong with contemporary American evangelicalism today is that it wants the result of verse 7 without the work of verse 8. It wants the peace it doesn't want to think. It fails to mind the mind. As it was famously said in an important book written 25 years ago, the scandal of the evangelical mind, the very first line of the book was that the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there's not much of an evangelical mind. Ouch. Kind of hurts. But that could not be said of Paul. That could not be said of the book of Philippians. And that could not be said of God's word as a whole. As we're going to see this morning, Paul is going to implore us. He's going to command us to think. To think constantly. To think deeply. Think about these things. In 4.1, he has told us to stand firm in the Lord. In verse 4, he has told us to rejoice in the Lord. In verse 6, he has told us to pray to the Lord. And now in verse 8, finally, brothers, he tells us to think. Which I think means that thinking is critical to standing firm, to rejoicing, to praying. That praying which results in peace. So maybe, just maybe, this is the missing ingredient. Maybe the missing ingredient is thinking. Or if you don't like that word, if it sounds too cold and logical and mindy, then the missing ingredient, as the New King James translates this word, is meditating. Meditating, meditation, is the missing link. You have been taught to have quiet times. We are all raised and taught to have these quiet times. And we've been taught that those times consist of scripture reading and prayer. And yet, for some reason, we're never taught what has historically been the critical third component of our devotion. The missing ingredient, the bridge between the two, and that's meditation. If that sounds strange to you, then good. I'm excited for you. We're going to unpack what that means in more detail in a moment. But I want to argue this morning that you cannot stand firm in the Lord without biblical thinking. You cannot rejoice in the Lord without biblical thinking. You cannot pray to the Lord without biblical thinking. You cannot have the peace of the Lord without biblical thinking. If you struggle with any of those things, maybe this could be one of the missing puzzle pieces. So this morning from God's word, we're simply going to think about thinking because your mind matters. What you um, think matters more than you think. Because you're always thinking. The number, if you just Google it, the number that will come up is that we average 70,000 thoughts a day. I have no idea how they quantify that or come up with that number. Some argue that it's a little bit lower than that. But either way, it's a huge number. Consciously and unconsciously, our minds are always working. They are thinking. They are guiding. They are directing. We use the word mindset. It's a very literal word. It's pretty self-explanatory. It's what your mind is set on. And what your mind is set on determines everything. Paul is commanding us this morning to intentionally and deliberately set your mind on the right things. 
One commentator puts it like this. Spiritual stability is a result of how a person thinks. The Bible leaves no doubt that people's lives are the products of their thoughts. If that's true, then thinking is really, really important. If that's true, that means your belief determines your behavior, your thinking directs your living. And much, maybe most, of our sanctification struggle and stagnation is a result of our failure to think this way and to think on these things. So let's think about this together. We're going to read God's Word, and we're going to meditate on it together as we seek to learn practically what this means. Three points. Uh, the point is think. That's the only point. But trying to give some sort of structure to this verse. The three points is we're going to see the connection between rejoicing and thinking. Then we're going to clarify what we mean by thinking by looking at the biblical practice of meditation. And then we'll close by trying to get a little practical and looking at how we do that uh, with God's word. But let me read it for you. I'm just going to read one verse. I couldn't get both of them in. So we're just going to do Philippians 4, chapter eight, or Philippians 4, verse 8 this morning. This is what God wants to say to you today. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If you would bow with me and let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I am thankful for your word. I'm humbled, tempted to be anxious about the privilege of preaching that word. Father, help me. Father, help us. Help both the preaching and the hearing of your word. Father, apart from you, we can do nothing, and that includes understanding the Bible. That includes living it out. Father, help us. Help us to see the beautiful gift that you have given to us. Help us to understand this command to think. And help us to see what a privilege and gift it is uh, to meditate on you. And in so doing, to be with you and to know you and to love you. Father, I cannot do that in myself or in anyone in here. But Father, you can by your spirit. And so we ask that you do now that now in this time. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's start at the end of verse 8. Uh, always look for and focus on the verbs. I was reading a book on poetry this week. Not a book of poetry. I don't understand poetry. I want to understand poetry. So I'm reading a prose book on poetry. I know that's not very poetic, but it's been helpful. But I was reading it on Thursday while working on this, and it said, every adjective and adverb is worth five cents. Every verb is worth 50 Sense. Right? Verbs are where the action is, literally. That's the meat. Focus on the verb. We've got a ton of adjectives in verse 8. We'll kind of get there. But we have to start with the main thing, with the verb, the action, the command. Think about these things. So let's think for a moment about the book of Philippians as a whole. We're sadly coming to the end of it. We've only got a few more weeks before we turn back Genesis. I've been really uh, enjoying, but also really been challenged by this book. And in it, we've talked a whole lot about joy. So we've titled this series, Gospel Generated Joy. Well, how do we know that this book is about joy? Well, it's pretty simple. It's, it's repetition. 
Because in it, Paul talks about joy over and over and over again. Sixteen times in this short 104-verse letter, Paul uses either the word joy or rejoice. Five times the noun joy, eleven times some form of the verb rejoice. So Paul's clearly concerned with joy. Kera in the Greek, we've defined it as gospel gladness. It is gladness because of the grace of God. God has been eternally gracious to us in giving us Christ and in so doing, giving us life. And because of that grace, we're glad. Glad not because of circumstances, but because of Christ. Or glad not because of immediate circumstances, but ultimate, eternal circumstances. In Christ, all is well. So we are glad about that. We feel well. We rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say Rejoice. So by simple repetition, Paul makes it clear that he is concerned with our rejoicing. His use of the verb 11 times drives that point home. So everyone rightly recognizes that rejoicing is a main theme of Philippians. But there's actually one verb that is used more times in this short book. Twelve times in this book, which is also more than any of other Paul's other longer letters, and that is this word, think. So we tend to get one of the main themes, but we often, almost entirely, miss the other main theme. But let's be clear first, the theme is Christ. Christ is always Paul's theme, and Christ is our theme. We preach Christ crucified That's why we're here. That's what this is all about. And listen, if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, that's what we want you to know. We're talking this morning about the practice of Christian thinking. But before you can practice Christian thinking, you you have to be a Christian. And that doesn't come about by something that you do. What's so wonderfully different about the gospel is that it comes about entirely by something God has done for us. So we want you to know that you are a sinner, just like me. Your sin separates you from God. Everyone out there is telling you what you need to do to get back on his good side, to, to earn his favor. But it's only the gospel that is telling you that you cannot do that. You cannot be good enough. You cannot do anything to save yourself but God, Ephesians 2. But God can and has in Jesus Christ. You sinned. Jesus, who is God, came to take that sin and die that death you deserved for it. That's the gospel. It is what God has done in Christ to solve your sin problem. He took your place. He took your death. So for you this morning, you don't need to worry about meditating. You need to worry about repenting. Repent And believe, Jesus says, turn away from your death-deserving sin and turn to the life-giving Christ. That's what we're all about, that good news of that gospel. And that's the main theme of the book of Philippians. Did that feel like an interruption? (laughs) I went through my sermon last night and I finished and I realized I didn't put the gospel in the sermon. And I had listened to Pastor Ed the Sunday before at Harry's commissioning service, and he stepped down here and he looked at Harry like this awkwardly, and he said, don't ever stand in this pulpit and not preach the gospel. And I realized that. Oh, I've got to get that back in my sermon. Because that's the most important thing. Jesus is the most important thing. 
Everything that we're about to say is caught up in him. He's first. He's the theme of the book of Philippians. But after that, coming back to the text, this book is particularly about the joy that comes through Jesus. And as I said, everyone sees that. But not many see the main way in which Paul tells us that we are to rejoice in Jesus. And by using this other verb 12 times alongside rejoice 11 times, he is showing us that one of the main ways we go about rejoicing in the Lord is by thinking in the Lord. Look back at chapter 1, verse 7. It's the first use of this word, think. It's the word phroneo with, with a PH, phroneo. And it shows up there in 1-7 where Paul says, it is right for me to feel this way about you in the ESV. But the King James translates this verse, it is right for me to think this way about you. Why does one say feel and one say think? Well, it's because this word that comes, uh, this Greek word, phren, uh, it's the word we get our word diaphragm from, which is kind of a right, right here, right? The, the chest, the mid section, the phren, referred to the area around the heart. But the ancient Greeks and Hebrews didn't divide things up like we do, as if thinking is a brain thing and feeling is a heart thing. No, they recognized that you thought with the heart. In ancient thought, the heart is who you are. It's deep down at your core, your identity, your center, your inner person, and it thinks and it feels and it chooses. That's your heart. And so that's why this first use of this word can rightly be translated feels or thinks. Because consider about how the Bible talks about our thinking. Genesis 6-5 talks about the thoughts of the heart. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, that it's out of the heart that comes evil thoughts. Right? Luke 2, 19, all this amazing stuff is happening and Mary is treasuring up everything and she ponders them in her heart. Right? So we cannot divorce the heart and the thinking the way that many want to today. Scripture doesn't do that. So we're not talking mere thinking. Don't hear me saying that this is some sort of mere intellectual surfacy exercise, a mere thinking about. We're talking about true biblical thinking. And Paul connects it directly to rejoicing by tying the two themes together by his interwoven repetition throughout Philippians. That's phroneo. But if you know what a concordance is, you can just look up a word and see where it's used and how many times it's used. If you were to pull up your fancy Bible concordance, you would find that this word only shows up 10 times in the book of Philippians. Where I said that Paul uses the verb think 12 times in the book of Philippians. What gives? Well, it's actually our verse that gives. It's verse 8. Think about these things. Think is a different word here. 10 times he's used one word and then now all of a sudden he uses a different word. And it's logizomai. You can hear the word logos in there. It's where we get our word logic or where we get our word logical. It means word or reason. In the beginning was the logos, was the word, Jesus. And he was with God and he was God. And so the big question that we should be asking when Paul uses one word ten times in a row and then all of a sudden uses a different word is why? Why does he do that? And I have a lot of commentaries 
on the book of Philippians, and none of them address it, and none of them give me an answer. So you're stuck with what I think. Um, but this word is a more calculated word, uh, literally. It is a more intense word. It is the word Paul uses 11 times just in Romans chapter 4 in talking about Christ's righteousness being considered or reckoned or counted as if it was our righteousness, right? We saw in, in chapter 3 of Philippians over and over again, God is righteous, you have to be righteous, you're not righteous, bad news. What do you need? You need the righteousness of Christ. It's not become righteous so that you can be saved, it's receive the gift of Christ's righteousness. And 11 times Paul uses this word to refer to that transaction. His righteousness is credited, it's counted, it is given to us. And that's why the New King James translates this word not think, but meditate. That's why the NASB translates this word not think, but dwell. They're signaling to us that this is a different word. This is something deeper. It's not just think about some stuff. It's meditate on these things. Reckon them. Consider them. So if you don't like the think language, if that sounds too heady for you, go with the biblical term meditate, because that's what Paul is telling you to do. He's recommending, and that's not strong enough of a word. This is an imperative. He is commanding you to meditate on these things. And he's not the only one. Let's move on to point number two. Let's explain this thinking by looking a little bit more at meditating. Let me run through a couple of passages. You read Psalm 1 earlier in the service, right? I wasn't here. Uh, but I hope you read Psalm 1. Let's start there. Go 448. We're going to spend a couple minutes in the Psalms. If you want to flip there, go to page 448. This is the first Psalm. It's pretty important. This is the one Psalm that is setting the stage and the tone for the 149 to follow. And it's all about blessing. God giving us Goodness, God giving us favor. How does that come? Who is the one that is hashtag blessed? Verse 2. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So the law there, don't think just the rules. It is the rules. That's important. God's law is good. But you could just say that that's God's revelation. It's God's Word. It's what he speaks to his people. And so note that it is not the one who reads the word that is blessed, but it is the one that meditates on that word. And in the Hebrew, the word literally means to, to mutter, to, to, to moan, to, to muse. And it came to metaphorically mean an, an internal kind of brooding over and thinking on something in the heart. And don't miss the connection between the first line and the second line of verse 2. Remember, Hebrew poetry, it's different uh, than ours. So, well, not anymore, because now free-form poetry is just kind of whatever. But generally, poetry, we think of it as rhyming words. Well, Hebrew poetry is a sort of rhyming, not of words, but of ideas. You have two lines together, and they relate to each other in some way. And so notice the connection in these two lines between meditation and, above it, delight. He delights in the law, and he meditates on the law. They're connected together. Meditation results in delight, or, in the language of Philippians, joy. 
How about Psalm 63, 5? Flip to 479. 479, Psalm 63, 5. We're going to move quick through a couple of these. Everybody wants to eat. Psalm 63, 5. My soul will be satisfied and praise you. How? When? Verse 6. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. So again, from verse 5 to verse 6, notice the connection between satisfaction and praise and meditation. And notice that in verse 6, the two parallel lines, you have remembering and you have meditating. And they're connected. So to meditate is in some way to remember. Flip over to Psalm 77, page 488. Not too far away. Psalm 77, verse 12, 488. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. So again, here's meditation paralleled with something before it, and it's to ponder. It's to consider. It is to think. There's, there's so many that we could just keep going on and on. Let's do one more. We've got to go to Psalm 119. Look at Psalm 119.97, page 514. Psalm 119, verse 97. This is probably the thesis statement of this massive and majestic psalm, which is all about God's word and our relationship to that word. Psalm 119.97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I love that. We don't ever think about loving the law. God's inspired word, the psalmist, loves the law. But don't miss the second phrase. It is his meditation all the day. Again, a thing we exclusively connect with the brain, here again is connected to love and delight. And look, just two verses below it, verse 99. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. So it's connected in the 97 to love and delight. In 99, it's connected also to understanding. You know, we can just keep going, but it has to be clear at this point that this meditation thing is pretty important. So let's, let's step back and try and define it. What is biblical meditation? And it's important that we do this because some of you are still, when you hear this word, you're thinking of kind of how our world thinks about meditation, which is some sort of strange emptying of the mind. And, and listen, this is tragically more and more slipping into the Christian world Today, uh, I read a couple of books, popular level books uh, that lots of people are reading that are more and more people are being taught to, to quiet themselves and look and turn inward and then open themselves up. That's not biblical meditation. Uh, be, be very careful uh, with that. Biblical meditation is no way some sort of Eastern om emptying of the mind, but biblical meditation is exactly the exact opposite. It is an intentional filling of the mind. Let me give you a couple of good definitions. And, and listen, I know that I'm belaboring this point, but it's because I'm convinced that this is a really, really important point that most of us have missed. So for recent definitions, I've given it to you before. Uh, J.I. Packer's From Knowing God is hard to beat. This is one of those books that you should probably read. It's kind of the closest thing we can get to like a modern uh, classic. It was very helpful to me a, a long time ago. Here's how he defines meditation. 
He says, meditation is the activity of calling to mind and thinking over and dwelling on and applying to oneself the various things that one knows about the works and ways and purposes and promises of God. It is an activity of holy thought. That's where I stole the title from. Consciously performed in the presence of God, under the eye of God, by the help of God, as a means of communion with God. So meditation simply is it's, it's holy thought. I love that. How does it work? Well, he tells us. It's, it's calling to mind. It's thinking over. It's dwelling over. It's applying things to ourselves, consciously performed in the presence of God as one of the means of communing with God. Again, this, isn't, this is no mere thinking. Or it's basically what we looked at two weeks ago from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Remember that, that famous line from Martin Lloyd-Jones where he says, hey, your main problem, he defines it, the main problem of spiritual depression is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. This is the very uh, essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? So meditation is talking to yourself. Or in the terminology today that's become popular, it is preaching to yourself. It's Psalm 42 and 43. Why so downcast, O my soul, put your hope in God. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul. He's speaking to himself. Bless the Lord, O my soul. How? Forget not all his benefits. And then David goes on to rehearse those benefits. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Psalm 110. If you want to steal my identity and everything that I have, which isn't very much, my password is something from Psalm 110. Good luck. It's a big psalm. I'm not worried about it. But I love Psalm 110. Sorry, 103. I'm saying 110. Psalm 103. 103. That's meditation. Let's get an old guy definition in there. Thomas Watson, dead guy, long time ago. He says, meditation is a holy exercise of the mind, whereby we bring the truths of God to remembrance and do seriously ponder upon them and apply them to ourselves. I like how simple that one is put. That's what it means to think on these things. It's meditation. It's the intentional activity of filling your mind with the things of God, dwelling on them, and then applying them. And Christian, here in this verse, you are commanded to do this. You're commanded to think. And so you rejoice in part through this biblical thinking. If you are struggling to rejoice, ask yourself, is this a possible culprit? Are you thinking? Are you meditating? How frequently do you make it through an entire day without thinking a single thought related to God? What is your mind filled with? What are you feeding your mind with? You've probably heard the phrase garbage in, garbage out. There's originally a computing term. Right? Bad input will always produce bad output. Well, that applies to the Christian life. Remember, the first psalm is entirely about input. I skipped the first verse. The first thing we're told about the blessed man is what he does not do. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Psalm 1 has been very important to me in a couple of ways. Psalm 1 is what finally convinced me to homeschool my kids because of this verse. 
because I couldn't get comfortable with the idea of nine hours of them just being put into this. And this is one of the verses that God used back in college to kind of convince me that I probably didn't really know him because I was entirely surrounded by these people and was like these people and living the exact same way that they were. They are where I was getting my input and my influence. I did not, First John, love the people of God. And God used that realization to start to get a hold of me and to bring me to him. So influence, the first thing the blessed man does is he does not surround himself with and he is not influenced by the input of the sinful world. And all I'm trying to do, in fact, one thing, it should be clear, I'm trying to convince you of one thing this morning. It's of the importance of your thinking. It's the importance of your mindset because you will become in practice what you most fill your mind with. You are meditating on something. It's not an option. You are always meditating. You are a thinking thing. And so the question is not whether you are meditating or not. The question is, on what are you meditating? What gets most of your time and attention? Right? What fills your mind? Maybe, maybe take this thing and swipe all the way to the left. I don't know what it's called. I'm not very technology advanced. And scroll to that main page and scroll down to the bottom and check that Screen Time app. You have that Screen Time app? Have you ever checked it? Would you be embarrassed to show me or someone else your screen time app? I use it and check it occasionally myself just to keep tabs on my time. Uh, one of the things you frequently hear as a pastor is just how busy people are. Doesn't forget meditation for a moment. Some of us struggle to even read the word or pray. And one of the most common excuses is just it's busyness. I just, you know, I don't have time. That's a lie. <laughs> to some degree, you're just, you're lying. I know you're busy. I'm not denying that. But you're not busy enough to probably hit the over three and a half hour average that most people spend on their phones. What does that little screen use time say for you? And that's input. That's influence. That's thinking and meditation. I'm not asking for three hours. I'm asking you to challenge yourself to give a couple of minutes to the things of God. To start there. Because your thinking is so, so important. And what you fill your mind with has a huge impact on your thinking, which then has a huge impact on your feeling, which then has a huge impact on your living. Maybe you're struggling to rejoice because the only input you're getting is garbage. That's possible. Maybe your thinking is entirely wrapped up in the things of the world. And honestly, answer yourself to the question, what is your mind set on? Listen to Romans 8. You can turn there if you want. Page 944. Romans 8, page 944. You should just memorize all of Romans 8, by the way. You should have that memorized. You need to know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and the rest of those wonderful truths. Listen to verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. You may be thinking that I'm emphasizing this thinking thing too much, but did you connect, catch what Paul connects your mindset to there? Life and death. 
The mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind that is set on the spirit is life. Life, and then the same word that we just saw in verse 7, and we'll see again in verse 9, Philippians 4. Peace connects it to your mindset. So this literally is a matter of life and death. Paul gets that, and so he pleads with us to think, think on these things. And we haven't even seen what things yet. We're going to come back to it uh, next week because there's just not enough time ever. But let me read them again for you so they're in your mind. It says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on those things. You have six whatevers and six adjectives, true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, and then you have two summary statements. Anything excellent, anything worthy of praise. That is what you are to set your mind upon. And what is that? It includes more that we don't have time for. We could expand this out and parse it out in more detail. We read Jesus tell us in Matthew 6 that if we're anxious, in part, what we should do is we should, we should look at the birds. We should consider the lilies. That's meditation. That's meditating on God's good creation and what can, it can teach us about him. But ultimately, because our time is short, we've got to go to the main thing. Ultimately, we know that the thing that is excellent, the thing that is worthy of praise, the thing that is true, the thing that you are to think on is the word of God. And that's the third point. It's meditating by the word or meditating on the word. Remember Psalm 1, on his law, he meditates day and night on his word. That's what you must fill your mind with and then dwell upon. That is what you must apply this this holy thought to. And I am so convinced that so many of our struggles are a result of our failure to pursue this thing. You've tried Bible reading, you've tried praying, you find yourself still lacking the peace and joy that Paul writes so beautifully about in Philippians. Maybe it's because we haven't tried Paul's solution. We haven't tried thinking. Listen again to Thomas Watson. He says, it gives us a true account why there are so few godly Christians in the world. Namely, because there are so few meditating Christians. We have many who have Bible ears. They are swift to hear, but they are slow to meditate. This duty is grown almost out of fashion. This is like 300 years ago, by the way. This duty is grown almost out of fashion. Where is the meditating Christian? Where is he who meditates on sin, hell, eternity, uh, the recompense, uh, the recompense of reward, who takes a prospect of heaven every day? Where is the meditating Christian? It is to be bewailed in our time that so many who go under the name of professing Christians have banished godly conversation from their tables and meditation from their closets. The devil is an enemy of meditation. This is interesting. It's not completely correct, but I get what he's saying. He cares not how much people read and hear. He knows that meditation is the means to compose the heart and bring the heart into a gracious frame. Satan is content that you should be hearing and praying Christians just so long as you are not meditating Christians. He can stand this small shot provided you do not put in this bullet. He describes meditation as the bullet. The devil is content that we be only hearing and praying Christians. Are we content with that? 
Maybe we need to commit this morning to be a doer and not a hearer only of this word, of trying out this practice of biblical meditation. How? How do you meditate by the word? It's not that complicated. It's, it's not uh, mystical. I just threw these together. It's four kind of simple steps. I'm trying to keep this as simple as possible. This is not profound. This is not deep. Four simple steps that you can do this with. If you just want four words, this is the process. It's pray, it's read, it's consider, it's pray. P-R-C-R, if that can spell something. Pray, read, consider, pray. That's it. Sounds pretty ordinary. Oh, I love the ordinary means of grace. So it starts first with prayer, and you must start with prayer. And apart from him, you can do nothing. Apart from the Spirit, you cannot even pray or read, much less meditate. So you begin with him. You ask him for help. You fix your mind first on him, and you call out to him, knowing, as we saw, verse 5, that he is that he's near. That's the promise. That he's, he's with you. In Christ, he's always with you. In Christ, he loves you. And he delights in helping you. You must start there. Ask him to wake you up. Ask him to focus your thoughts. Ask him to stir your affections. Humbly seek the Lord's assistance before you do anything. You have to start with him. Ask for his help. Well, second, simply, you just read. Remember, meditation is not emptying the mind. It's filling it with the things of God, with his word. Biblical meditation must always start with the word. So to be most simple, you, you let your daily reading be the fuel for your daily meditating. And if you don't have daily reading, well, that's a good place to start. Let your daily reading be the fuel for your daily medicate, meditating. And if you don't know where to start, as I suggested last week with prayer, same thing here. Start with the Psalms. And if you do nothing, read a psalm in the morning. Or, hey, even better, it's hard to argue better, hey, go to the Gospels. Like just read about Jesus over and over and over again. Every person I meet, I tell them to start with Mark or John. Start with Mark or John. Meet Jesus in the pages of Scripture. Read of the one that you claim to love and follow. You, you simply must be in the Word. It's tragic how minimized God's Word has become in so many churches today. There's just no way around this. If God's Word is not at the center of your life, then God is not at the center of your life. He's not, because that's how he mediates him. That's how he is present with us. That's how he works. If your experience of God is not regulated and mediated by the word of God, then it is not God that you are experiencing, because God speaks and he works through his word. So read it. That's why we have long scripture readings. That's why we want our songs to be bathed in the word. That's why we preach a passage of scripture every time we preach. It's because the word is everything. So read it. But as we've seen, that's not itself meditation. You cannot do it without reading, but many of us struggle because we only read. And this is the one that we skip. The third step after reading, consider. Because this, this is the difference maker. It is so easy to read and not understand. I can read a whole page and then realize, I read every single word of that. But I have no idea what it said. Because I'm able to read while thinking about something else. I don't able to read while having my mind entirely set on something else. Guess what I remember from that reading? Nothing. Guess what that reading does for me? Nothing. Considering is what saves me 
from this. We are after understanding, life-changing understanding. This is why you must come up with some sort of way to discipline yourself to slow down. That's all we're trying to get here. Slow down and to consider what you have just read. This will look different for everyone. So I'm hesitant to prescribe a method that you have to follow. Uh, But I ask questions of the text to force myself to engage with the word, to make sure I'm not just reading but understanding. It could just be something as simple as answer who, what, where, when, why. Or you could use the three questions I've recommended before. What's one thing this text teaches me about God? Uh, What's one text this teaches me about myself, uh, my sinful self? Uh, What's the one thing from this text that I can ask God It's just three simple questions forced me to go back and look and consider the text. Do you understand what you are reading? Do whatever you have to do to make sure that you do and think on it. Come at it from different angles. Focus on this word and then focus on this word. Um, uh, Put it in your own words. You don't understand it if you can't put it in your own words. Ask what it means for you. If this is really true, what would you do? What would you change? How would you live if you really believed this thing that you have just read? As I've said before, one of the most helpful things for me is to zero in on one idea. My little brain can only take so much. So I need one big thing, one idea that I want to make sure and take away from the text. I mentioned in the email Thursday, I did that recently with Mark 737. He has done all things well. That stuck out for some reason, and I wrote it down, and I considered, and I took it with me for the rest of the day. And put it on a note card, put it in your pocket, put it on a note on your computer or your phone, whatever works for you, and then come back to it throughout the day and remind yourself and encourage yourself with the truth of God's word. My, my Jesus does all things well. That person does not do all things well. I do not do all things well. He does. And let that be a hook for you, something that you can keep coming back to, something to aid you in fixing your mind on Christ. The point is do something to help you better and more intentionally set your mind on God's word. In this step, it is this step, consider, that I think is often the key missing ingredient. And there's arguably no duty among Christians more neglected than this one. And I beg you to attend to it. Consider and then finally, the fourth step is, is, is pray again. You pray to begin, and you pray to end. You ask God for grace. Uh, you thank him for everything. You confess to him your failure to just meditate in the way that you should have meditated. And you ask him to help you. And you thank him that he is faithful, and that he is good, and that he is kind. Right? You rest in that goodness. Thank you, Father, that you have done all things well. Thank you that for me in Christ, all things are well. Help me not to neglect you as I go throughout my day. Help me to come back to you. Help me to remember. Help me to delight in you. Help me to love others as you have so loved me. Amen. That's, that's it. Pray, read, consider, pray. It's simple. This is just a very humble and a very insufficient attempt to explain what it means to think on these things. So again, I ask you, in light of Paul's command, to consider meditation. Think about your thinking. Is this what you may be missing? You are meditating on something. Your mind is filled with something. Is it, is it this? Is it these things?
because it's your thinking that determines your life. But I know some of us struggle so much because in part you're feasting and you're filling yourself only with junk food because of where your mind is set. And set it on God's word. God's wonderful word. It's, it's sufficient. That's the thing that's most being challenged today. The sufficiency of God's word in the churches. You need to hear that and believe that. So many are implying that it's not sufficient. You know, guys, it is. God's word is everything. I can speak confidently, I can speak prophetically, uh, that it is what you need. It's what you need to set your mind on. Don't listen to anyone who would tell you that there's something else, that there's something more than the word. Set your mind on the word because it's, it's his word. It's God's word. And it's not an accident that the scriptures and Jesus himself are given the same name, the word. God's revelation of himself to us. These are not just words. So let me be clear. In thinking on these, you're not just thinking. But this is the word that is living and active. It's, it's sharp as a sword. It exposes us. It judges the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And it can do that because this is no mere word. As God is, God is here. He is with us. And he is with us through his word. He mediates his presence to us through his word that exposes us for what we are, sinners, but exposes us also to what he is, Savior. He is gracious Savior. Yes, in Psalm 1, it's the law that we meditate on, but it's his law. It's the law that reveals him. And so to meditate on the law is to meditate on him. Psalm 63.5, did you catch that? We went from meditate on the law to Psalm 63.5, clarifying what it is that we're really doing. I will remember you. I will meditate on you. Brothers and sisters, your thinking is so important because your thinking is how you engage with this. And this is how he engages with us. He speaks through his living and active word. He saves us. Through his word, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word. He sanctifies us. He changes us. He encourages us. And he comforts us in his word. He is near. And he speaks. So listen to him and think on him. And it's, I hope nothing I'm saying is like, hey, this is this miserable duty or discipline you have to do. Oh, it's a delight. I love to think about my life. My wife is gone, and I miss her. Um, it makes me appreciate her, because I'm trying to raise three kids by myself, and I don't get how she does it. Uh, I delight to think on my wife. I delight to think about my children. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be your pastor. I want to go home and hang out with my kids, right? because I love them. And so it's a privilege and a delight to think about them. I delight to think about things that I love. So this is this call and this privilege and this opportunity to put our entire lives revolving around the one that we most love. He gave us everything. He gave us his son. He rescued us from death and hell. He is infinitely beautiful and wonderful. And Paul says, hey, think on him and pray to him and be with him and delight in him. Again, Paul's, God's commands are not burdensome. Hey, hey, I want you to be happy, rejoice always. Hey, I want you to not worry. Hey, that sounds pretty great. Hey, I want you to know me and think about me and delight in me. 
What a privilege that God commands us to do this. So take his word and think on them. And by so doing, think on him. Do whatever you do to set your mind on God through Christ. Because John 17, 3, knowing him is life. Philippians 3, knowing him is of surpassing worth. Knowing him is where you will find joy and peace. So think on him. Bow with me and let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that it's not just words. Forgive us for how we often treat it as if it's just words. Forgive us for how bored we sometimes get with your word. Father, we so thank you that you are the God who speaks. And you have preserved for us this wonderful and sufficient word. This word that you save us by. This word that you reveal your son to us through. Uh, this word that changes our entire lives as it holds us up to the mirror of your law and shows us and exposes us for what we are while drawing us to you and what you are as good and gracious and kind to his people, as merciful and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love. Father, help us to delight in you. Help us to seek you in your word. Father, forgive us for how easily our mind are set on football games and silly things that we're already tempted to consider. Father, help us to long to better know you and to think about you and to build our lives around you. Father, I am very insufficient. I feel very insufficient for this task. I ask now that you would be infinitely sufficient through your word. I ask now that you would apply uh, this word to our hearts. Father, show us Christ. Help us to love your son, Jesus Christ, and to live our entire lives thinking on him and resting in him and delighting in him. Father, help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.